we, we make repeatedly make the notion, jokingly the notion that in the Freak Lab we don't watch the Marvel movies. But that's true. We we don't watch Marvel films. We we don't watch that much modern movies at all. What we watch is old movies. These frozen fragments of history long ago. We watched movies decades ago. Now we are talking about the umpteenth hour about Cinema Paradiso, which was made in 88. It's a decades old film. Pretty much nobody gives a shit anymore of it. it it's not topical. It, it's not what the mass audiences will go see in cinema. The people who care about films like Cinema Paradiso are film buffs, critics and people like us. We are the ones who see the trouble and pay astronomical amounts of money to have Blu-ray copies of black and white films. For fuck's sake, we can't let go of the old world in a sense. We, we are explorers and we are scholars who try to look, look into the past. And that way I would say that we also are, much like Toto in his love with Elena, we also are being trapped and being kept prisoned by the past. Non-vedro film pornografici. Welcome to the Flick Lab. I'm Corri. And my partner in crime is Henrik. We are all kind of our children of media, slaves of media, especially the form of film, which is what we're going to discuss here every Thursday. How are you, Henrik? I'm doing relatively well, at least for situation-wise. Yeah, I heard that you're uh, the biggest fan of Home Office. I, I, I must say that I, I hate it from the bottom of my heart. It's, it's, like, it's, it's like the Satan's version of Office work. Oh, really? Oh, really? Nobody looking after you, nobody snooping what you're doing, nobody regulating if you're going to the toilet at the right time. What could be bad about it? You, you, you're basically waking up going to the office, going to your workplace, doing your days mandatory, what you have to accomplish. You're quitting your work and you're staying in the exact same goddamn location, looking at the exact same computer monitor and the exact same surroundings, except now you are supposed to be on free time. I get that perspective. And this is why I recommend for people who can't stand it at all to do the work in some kind of a separate room to kind of help with it. Bedroom is the best choice. <laughs> no. But yeah, it's not for everybody, I suppose. But most but... definitely not for me. It has come blatantly obvious during these couple of weeks. Yeah, that's the smallest evil for me, definitely, is just going home office. Not preparing to look very elegant and smart and dressing perfectly and then going to work and... Uh, Having all these social pressures, and as an introverted person, uh, this is uh, my biggest nightmare in life, so no thank you. So if anyone wants to still hire me, I'm available for calls. What's happening this week? 
Well, looks like we are looking at Cinema Paradiso. This is a film that has been on our to-do list for over a year because it's been a name that has been floating around ever since we did the Horses of God episode in which uh, our guest recommended us to watch it. And now it's finally here. And I understand that this is the first time for both of us for seeing this, which is considered a gem, a, a classic film. It, it, it is often remarked on those those 250-100 best films you most definitely have to see before you die lists that circulate in internet. And yeah, somehow, unbelievably, we have been able to still circumvent this movie. Well, so on let's... my end, it's well, it's been unintentional. I haven't really been trying to evade the film, but at the same time, I most definitely, I'm I'm not a person who follows the lists and tries to go through, like meticulously go through the IMDb top 250 best films ever or anything like that. And still, you're the guy who is who is giving me crap occasionally that I haven't seen this and this classic film, on, which is appearing on this and that list. <laughs> well, you know, you simply being uncultural and uncivilized swine has nothing to do with my tendencies of not following IMDb's lists. And this is the guy I have to work with. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure we got plenty of swine movies coming up tonight. We are going to move into some different direction so we're actually we are continuing on the same lane because we have watched uh, three movies now we have we, and this is the third one in the line that has something to do with italy and of course we are living the coronavirus times so this was unintentional it just happened so but uh, italy there you go I, un- unintentionally really doesn't fly that well after that Don Camillo episode where you remarked that we are supposed to get back on our roots and once again be international cinema podcast and yeah. on because of that we were not we are now supposed to touch an Italian film that's a remark mm-hmm. you made in an episode that we were in which we were covering an Italian film so we are as bad in in making innuendos and making shortcuts from one film to the next as as we are in fulfilling cinema requests on this podcast. No, but this is an Italian-French co-production, once again, and uh, directed by Giuseppe Tornatore. I hope I'm pronouncing that completely wrong. Born in Bagheria, in the outskirts of Palermo. And here the ball rolls to our film and the cultural expert, Henrik. What do you know about Tornatore? Uh, basically known as one, one, one of the maestros of Italian cinema. One of those guys who come and concede is that he's a director who simply can't make a bad film. Even if he tried. Originally started up as a photographer and from there transferred into cinema, starting with documentary features and documentary cinema and later on from there evolving into a storyteller of fiction. Yeah, one other classic film that he's known for is The Legend of 1900. Also haven't seen, so I have things to do here. Uh, Yeah, they're still working even today. He's he's a guy who kind of makes a film like every every four years on on average 
three or four years. And then the, the, the high peak years are like 95 when he made something like like three films in, in one year. And also now for Malena and other, other such highly regarded pieces of Italian cinema. Currently is making a documentary about Ennio Morricone, who also made the music for, for Cinema Paradiso. It's said that this film is very much an autobiography of the director himself. And it is filmed, at least in Bagheria, this city that he was born in. So it's a kind of a love letter also for his, you know, beginnings. The city, the town in which this film takes place in the fictional universe is uh, Giancaldo. And uh, yeah, it's fictional. Caldo means warmth. So uh, of course, it's going to be a place of happiness and good memories and all that. I could actually see a lot of things that, you you know, I can reflect to myself. And I think that is the magic of the film in a nutshell, that people see, well, I, I guess it's kind of sad, really. People see their own lives and all the, all their missed opportunities in this film and then just crying their hearts out for it. I don't know if something like that, that happened to you. I didn't, well, I was kind of still processing this film when I saw it for the first time. And I started to like it quite a bit more when I saw it on the second time and when I got to all these small details with, that were crammed into the film. But overall, I think it speaks the most for people who have experienced something similar. So yeah, did you get any like vibes that you have gone through some same routes? Well, with your question about vibes gotten from, from the movie, the, the question itself, it kind of carries also the notion that which that many critics of the film, especially Italian critics, have raised that the movie itself is kind of a nothing else except an attempt to just continuously pull the audience's heartstrings by using and abusing cheap nostalgia. And that kind of a, to get back into your question, to try it down in the whole whole nostalgia usage aspect of the film, I myself didn't really get like that that strong, that that extreme emotional resonance from the film. And I most definitely didn't feel that. This was somehow trying to weaponize nostalgia in order to win the audiences on the, on the film's side. That being said, however, I can very well see where the audience reaction is coming from and kind of what the critics are coming from when when they when the audiences say that this somehow really strongly resonated with them and when the critics are saying that this is nothing more than an attempt to use nostalgia because there is a hell of a lot that you can connect with, especially if if you yourself is are Italian and have lived during this time period in these smaller Italian villages. If you are not, in that case, there is still some ground where where you can strongly connect with the themes of the film. And that theme would be kind of the love for cinema, which is something that I can very well see that that, that even the Western audiences, especially those who are film puffs, film podcasters, critics, and even, even I, to a certain extent, did connect with. Mm. The mood is kind of a comedical 
in a slight degree. So I think that's what they were aiming for. When you have these uh, certain moments, especially in the first part of the film uh, with the nine-year-old kid of Toto, there you see the most caricaturic scenes where characters do something very emotional, react to the film that they are watching, or, or I don't know, something something happens. It gets a little bit more, you know, the, the themes are switched immediately to more adult when we get to the teenager version of Toto and onwards. I'm not sure if we can fault the film for trying to, you know, artificially pull our heartstrings. It's hard to say, but I definitely did notice that they were overplaying the emotions. And you could then make the accusation that this translates wrong and this is trying too hard. I, I didn't feel that the film was trying to pull my heartstrings. I also didn't feel that the film was overplaying emotions. It is very emotional. And like I said previously, I can see where the arguments are coming from, even though I didn't feel them myself. But to me, if there is something that kind of a, that, that became the running theme and the running motive of the film, to me personally, it would be kind of a, the, the movie being a love letter to, to cinema and what film and what movies are and what they can be. And I found that attempt and that exercise from the director's part in the end, I do believe that that was earnest attempt to make that feeling, that kind of a passion that a film buff has towards cinema to somehow make it into a picture, make it into an image. And that's what I got from the film when I saw it. But like, like I said, like I said, I can also see the counter argument that this yeah. is manipulative and this is just pulling your heartstrings. And even your argument that this is overplaying the emotions. That's not how I felt it, but I can see your argument. Yeah, for example, I thought that the priest was overly caricaturic in the very first scenes when we see him in the theater watching the film and having happy expressions and angry expressions. Yep, yeah, yep, yeah. and uh, once again, once again, I can, I can see it. Yeah. I, I can see yeah. I can see the argument very well. Uh, the way how I, however, read it was that, that once again, that was character's personal experience with the wonderness of cinema. And with that take on the censorship scene of the film, to me, it came out or I read it as as more earnest attempt to simply depict that connection that an audience member can have with with movies and and even certain scenes with movies. I, I with with the priest that you you said the expressions were kind kind of a caricaturic and and overdone in a in a way. I I saw that as earnest attempt to kind of capture that even at times even a childlike maybe even a bit innocent enthusiasm that you can get when you when you see something that is forbidden or when you see something that that you can kind of know that not everybody sees or when you see and and see a scene in within a picture that really kind of uh, has a connection with you yeah 
so we're living the corona times and I think these are the, these are the loudest bangs I have ever heard from my hallway of the like apartment building starting to piss me off. Maybe I should go whack a couple of people and come back. Maybe you should just leave because there is also a possibility that what you are hearing is simply Polish construction. <laughs> building a wall on the front yard. <laughs> no, no, it, it, it's the wall that has been built. It's, it's simply the house around you that is slowly collapsing. <laughs> All right, so the structure of the podcast is so that we talk a little we bit about interact. What? We shoot what? the shit at first, and then we get to the scene by scene, which drags way <laughs> too long, and then it's the longest. Yeah, so in, in case you're already tired, you will be even more so after we get to the scene by scene, which is going to make the meat and chunk of our film podcast, after which we will jump into the so-called quickies, where we will discuss some of the individual elements of the film for forever, and then we will finish the episode someday. Yeah, yeah. I suck at marketing. <laughs> well, may- maybe we can turn this turn this one on its head. But <laughs> we we can promise our audiences that that once we launch our Patreon, if it's if it's actually successful and we make like a ton of culture. Yeah, it's not gonna be me though. <laughs> Talking of length, we have two different versions of this film. We have we, the we have. We we have the director's version, and then we have the version that pretty much made the Weinsteins of all the goddamn fuckers. Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. But what I do know is that the director willingly did the theatrical cut. He saw that it was the only possible cut to be made, and he did it all by himself, according to his own words. So I'm going to stick by that. Mm, yeah. Yeah, a couple of notions with that. But the director, as as you said, made the theatrical cut, which is is the longer one of the two cuts. Or like, like there is actually three cuts mm. of, of the film. There's the director's cut, then there's the theatrical cut. Uh, for the theatrical cut, the director cut like one scene, and that's that's about it. It's it's like eight I don't remember how long the different versions are. But the cuts to the theatrical cut were kind of a minimal. But then, after the theatrical cut had originally flopped, and the film was deemed as failure, years following that, the Weinsteins found the film and got the distribution rights and made the international cut, which is just like two hours or something like that. That's actually the version of the film that became a hit originally. Like, that's the one that got Oscars, and that's what made Weinsteins the the big names in, in Hollywood and cinema production circles pretty much actually built their careers. Weinsteins had been producing movies way before they actually found Cinema Paradiso, but Cinema Paradiso was their first legit kind of industry standard appreciation enjoying release there, there there is a director's cut which is what we we saw and yeah. then there was the original theatrical release that was released in italy that that's something like 155 minutes long and then there was the third cut the international cut mm-hmm. which is which is 2 hours and three minutes 
in in length. So I believe that's the one that we have watched both. The international. Yeah. Well, okay. not me at least. Fuck, my my cut runs like almost three hours. Okay, so then the you have fuck have the you been cut. watching, my dear man? <laughs> this is weird. Are, are, are you even <laughs> watching the same same movie? Like like. Is... Wasn't this Alien Covenant today? <laughs> the director's cut is 174 minutes, and the theatrical cut is 123 minutes, as per IMDb. And yep. I, yeah, I have watched uh, both. So, uh, and this international cut. Uh, that that's the one that the director himself did not cut, as far as I'm understood. That that's actually uh. what what cut. Got turned down by the Weinstein machine, and everybody gave prizes to that one for some ungodly reason, which I've never un- understood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The anyway, the producers were were pressing for the director to make an alternate cut, and most definitely, director's cut was out of the cards, which which was the director's initial plan, and then it was cut uh, under the pressure, under pressure of the producers, and so he did, but willingly so. He did the only cut that was, in his opinion, possible, and uh, director's cut was deemed unacceptable for commercial purposes. And the biggest difference, really, at the end of the day, in the director's cut to the other cuts is that, that the third part of the film is way longer, and gives you some more explanation and background. (laughs) to say the least, for Toto and Elena's story. Yeah, yeah, G- gives you some little background as far as I've understood. Right. But w- once again, in in the international cut, I've got to understand the entire third act, like where, where, where the now adult Toto meets the now adult Elena, all that stuff is actually removed from, from the international version. And to, uh, actually, to, to na- nail this whole thing and, and to make this even even kind of more baffling is that that also Roger Ebert to to actually show showcase how actually crazy this whole situation becomes. Roger Ebert originally in his reviews he gave the international cut, which is just a shy about Jeez. two hours, uh, three and four stars, and then the director's cut got three stars. Yeah, well, we can get to our preferences when it comes to these versions, I'm sure. But for me, pretty much the director's cut is an entirely different film thanks to the changes in the third part. But hey, let's let's get to this scene by scene. Included with this release of on Blu-ray for the film, you have a commentary track from Millicent Marcus, who is a professor of Italian at Yale University and is an expert on Italian cinema and an author of several books on the same subject. And she was a huge help in putting together some of the plot points of the film, like the more of the minor ones in a way, but it gives you a huge con- con- context surrounding the film. Okay, opening credits. So here we have like the, like the I believe it's a zoom out from the balcony to the trademark Sicilian fruit lemon. And uh, we get to the mother of Toto calling and trying to find Toto, who has been away from his hometown for over 30 years. And there's something urgent going on. Already kind of a pretty cinematography going on here. And this is where it pretty much cuts to the middle-aged 
Toto's house. And mood-wise, it's going to be cold and desolate and empty. Because that's what happens to you if you don't follow your dreams in films. But he does have the friend's wind chimes. His only friend. And there's some distant lady on the bed, but uh, emotionally and physically they seem to be completely apart. I don't get really chemistry from them. They don't even share a kiss. They sleep on the opposite ends of the bed, which happens, especially when you get older, I guess. But this is not really communicating happiness. Well, it kind of depends on, on what type of happiness you are looking for. Like happiness with your life or happiness with love life. Because there, there is kind of a mm, two ways that Toto's dreams come and don't come in fruition in, in, in Cinema Paradiso. He does achieve his, his dream and his wish of somehow working with, with cinema and keeping that connection to movies, but where he falters is is his love life and fulfilling his dreams love-wise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, to me, it seems that uh, his life is uh, completely unappealing and not what he wanted to do in his life. It's so cold in these scenes. But, of course, it's at the same time trying to take, you know, you know set, set mood-wise the, the separation between these two worlds. The, the happy childhood world where we're going to jump soon enough. And then they present the stage, which is not that happy anymore. Yeah, I, I never read it the way that Toto is dissatisfied with his life outside of his love life. Yeah, and uh, director Scott makes some unfortunate decisions with that plot that he is not satisfied with his love life. But uh, let's get to that later because hoo hoo hoo. Um, <clears throat> So he hears about uh, Alfredo's death, Alfredo, who is, if you haven't seen the movie for some reason before you tuned in, Alfredo is the guy who is a projectionist in this uh, small, or not so small, the only theater as it's shown, really, in this uh, Italian town in Sicily. Uh, so Alfredo is dead and uh, therefore evokes the, the whole story, that the, the whole, the whole the remembering the past situations, because that's what we do in this film. Okay, let's go to church. We have the child Toto here. Boy Toto introduced. Nine years of age. Played by Salvatore Castillo, I suppose how you pronounce it. Seems like this is one of his very few appearances on film. So for whatever reason, his cinematic career didn't really get off from this platform. Yeah, uh, Salvatore Castillo, who is maybe the most notable of, of the three iterations of Toto in the film. Mostly because of the astonishing childbirth performance he gives here. Mm -hmm. Salvatore unfortunately never was able to kind of make the transition from child actor to, to an actor, or more grown-up actor. Salvatore did try to make the, uh, the transitions. There were some films that he made in his early teens, but nothing really ever came about them. There, there, there was that one comedy, The Pope Must Die, for example, and that's his, his entire career just kind of fizzled out. Salvatore himself maintains that he is quite happy how his life turned out and 
that he didn't, in the end, he himself didn't want to become actor. His reasoning for this is that that when you are a child actor, the whole movie-making process is kind of a game to you. You are just playing and goofing around, and the movie happens. And as you get more older, the acting becomes your job. You are, you are supposed to study it, and you're supposed to take it really seriously. And it, 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 it becomes like a real thing, contrary to you being a child actor, and he didn't enjoy that aspect. Mm. And th- therefore, he, he was kind of a happy to walk away from acting. Today, he, he still is, is a regular in, in film festivals, in, which he visits almost yearly, talking about his experiences with Cinema Paradis show and what it was for him to, to be a child actor. Last I heard of him was that he's running a B&B. Okay. He has a, kind of a very magnetic performance here. Like that uh, childlike energy is oozing through the screen and it's really fun to watch. What, what, a, like, what a ball of energy, really. And uh, also doing a great performance, as you said. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of a shame that that his career did not transgress from from cinema paradise or from from the child acting years. But then again, it, it is a difficult transition to make. Basically, every transitioning process that you have to make within within movies within cinema, it's, they they are always hard and. And even often some way painful processes. So I can kind of also understand that even though he really shines here as a as a young child actor, he still wasn't able to transition into a more adult actor. Yeah, Toto is uh, having trouble staying up because uh, he has not been eating too well, or that's the analysis that Toto gives that is possibly the likeliest reason for him not being able to stay up. Well, most likely it's just simply because he spends all his goddamn time and, <laughs> yeah. and his evenings and his nights in the movie theater. Most likely. And uh, you can read it maybe in different ways as well. This, this is just, you know, this, uh, what would be an appropriate word, kind of a conniving little angel. He's not the most honest uh, kid around the block. I would say, like he's making up excuses and lying to his mother. So yeah, the, the Madonna statue that the priest has hidden in inside of his closet, uh, there are kind of two ways you can at least interpret that. There, there is the more political stance to be taken, and then there is the more artsy-fartsy emotional side how you can read the Madonna statue. The more political one is that it's that shot is criticizing the, the church's connection to Italian politics. The church being something that has rubbed shoulders with political factors and players in Italy pretty much fucking always. I mean, they started that already in the Middle Ages when the church was an open political Player, there, there was that one time when they quietly approved Mussolini's reign and didn't uh, raise any questions. And during kind of the time that the film was made, there also was the collaboration with, with church and, and the political parties 
within Italy, more notably the more conservative, more on the right side, political elements like Democrazia Cristiana, uh, which basically run like a political monopoly in Italy for decades and was, was in good terms with the church. Democrazia Cristiana was more on the right side of the political spectrum. So essentially, when the Madonna statue here is revealed, it's on the left side of the closet, which is mm-hmm. which can be seen as kind kind of a, a critique towards poli- uh, the church's political leanings, seeing how, in those terms, the Madonna statue would be on the quote-unquote wrong side of the closet. At the same time, the more artsy-fartsy take you can read into this is that the Madonna statue often is depicting maternal affection and love. And in here, the Madonna statue is is hidden. It's locked away into the closet where nobody can see it and it can see nobody. And you can kind of take it that that's the same way how through the movie censorship that the priest here runs and operates and through the priest, the church demands and dictates is also something that the, the church is hiding passion and love from the villagers by censoring and cutting out all the scenes that involve kissing, a physical manifestation of love and compassion. Okay, and they say that I read too much. Jesus. I, I'm nothing if not obnoxious. I wonder if it was for this episode or you've spent your nights reading about Italy, Italian history. Uh, to be absolutely honest, I, I did start to kind of a double in into Italian history already way back. And I revisited the whole thing for, for the Don Camillo, uh, Camillo episode. So at, at this point, I'm already kind of, a, once again, on more easy terms. <laughs> Good to hear. Yeah, so like you mentioned uh, about this uh, censoring of the movies. Yeah, this movie theater is connected to the church. Many theaters of the time, post-war Italy, Italy was like this, that there were many movie theaters that were attached to churches and important spots of entertainment. For the communities, it was, therefore, an important place of cutting film. Yeah, as pointed in the commentary, we have uh, three different kinds of gazes here. We have the one who's doing something he shouldn't, which is the kid, and then there is the moralizing gaze from the priest, and then the so-called technical gaze from upstairs, from the projectionist Alfredo. So this is kind of a nice little gaze composite mix-up. And the film in question here is the Lower Depths French film, if I found that correctly. And the priest is using the censorship bell, so to speak. And every time there's something to censorship, the bell is ringing. When we get to the next scene, we have the church bells. So it cuts from this small bell into the big one in the church. And this kind of a cuts, intercuts happen throughout the film in pretty ingenious ways here and there. And I, I, I suppose these transitions are really great for keeping, you know, the attention span of the audience going. Kind of, and they also make, especially the bell got here, makes... A pretty good case on exactly how big player the church really is on on this town and Italian communities back in the day. Because like like you mentioned, uh, during this time, often the 
the cinemas which were called Paris cinemas, at, at least in some circles, they were really operated by the church. The church owned the building, the church bought the, bought the equipment, hired the projectionist, and also chose the movies that you show. There was, of course, there was the business side to this. And because of that, you had to show certain films that, that were in, in big enough public demand that it made monetary sense to actually show and, and screen that particular movie. But once again, with, with in, even with those individual films that you show, you could still censor scenes out. And something that, that the Catholic Church and these Paris cinemas were more than eager to do was to not show any films that would be considered to be leftist or communist. And like also shown here, in addition to that, also eliminating the love scenes, which they felt that were kind of unsavory and, and even pornographic. Like they would be tempting their, their parishioners into the pleasures of flesh, which, which is something that the Catholic Church has always had some some opinions about. So with, with those cuts, you, you get the sense that the Church not only controls and regulates the free time and the most of the artistic and free expression that the villagers have. The film theater, Cinema Paradiso, is the on top of, of being a film theater. It's also the public platform where the people can come together and, and have discussions, voice out their opinions. And stuff like that. So it, it is a central player in in the way how how the social links between the villagers play out, and the church is able to control that. On top of it, the church also, since Italy is extremely Catholic country, is also a major player on its own right within the town by being a church. The next scene that I have something to point out is the. Pam pam pam. When we get back to the flat, and uh, Toto has gotten a bunch of film from Alfredo to play with, I see that even the mother is smiling at her son's imitation of the film scenes. And pay attention to that because there will be a complete mood shift from the mother, where she is outright denying Toto's access to the theater because there's a little bit of a burn accident in the house, as we know. So at least I took it as a like a smile kind of accepting this behavior, maybe not fully, but, you know, still kind of enjoying that the the kid is enthusiastic about this. So, yeah, for background, indeed, uh, since in the same scene, uh, I believe we are discussing the father of the family who has gone to the the front in from June 1941 to January 1943. There were 200,000 Italian soldiers sent to Russia, ill-equipped, unprepared, for the Russian winter, and 150,000 died, 60,000 held as prisoners. And of course, the father of the family was one of those who was uh, assumed killed on the field. Yeah, or if not in the battlefields, then most likely later on in Soviet prison camps, because those yeah. most definitely were, were a nice place to be. Mm-hmm. Soft bed, internet access, 
internet access, good warm food, some some relaxing activities. Yeah. Good times, good times. <laughs> uh, there is the school building external shot. This this is a medieval castle of some sort that was used for the film as the Sicilian school building. So it looks kind of impressive from where we get to the math lesson. Which also this... is impressive, I must confess. <laughs> old school, old school. Old school, old school. Those were the days. <laughs> Youngsters oh. these days doesn't know anything about hardship. I understand once again this is uh, some kind of a homage to the director Fellini that uh, the director likes to do in his films. And we have the Leonardo, aka Boccia, and gets hammered against the blackboard. And Boccia, as the commentary track uh, explained it to us in Italian, means to flunk. So basically, Boccia is something like a Dumb nut and <laughs> well, he most definitely is. God damn well, him with. Well, 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 well. I first thought that he got the red mark on his head. First of all, thanks to the teacher hitting his head on the blackboard, but apparently <laughs> it's just something that. <laughs> I, I, I also, also that was, that was the first reading I also had, but it turned out to be a birthmark in the end. Uh, uh, right, and I wouldn't even know that if I had I not been watching the director's cut. Precisely. But but even even the birthmark really does not save Pochiano here. And I don't know. God damn it, kid! But did you read this scene as uh, Boccia being too stupid to understand Christmas as being the number twenty-five, or did you read it that Boccia simply took the opportunity to just make fun of the teacher? I I'm going to go with the second option. I simply took that he was way too stupid. That there is a reason why I took that reading comes. Apparently later on in the director's cut version scenes in, in the final third of the movie. Mm-hmm. There, there is a one remark Elena makes that, in my opinion, ties down pretty nicely with the whole concept that, that Pochiana is, is really dumb as bricks and wouldn't know goddamn anything and wouldn't be able to count. Okay, but... Uh... But interesting, because in this uh, teaching scene, you, you see Bociak and he's having this kind of a challenging, excited smile on his face that now I'm going to give the wrong answer again to the teacher. And just for shits and giggles, that's how I read it. I I, I, I took that smile simply as, as Bociak being sure that, that this is the correct answer. Like, like he is smiling out of relief. Because he he has successfully now cheated the teacher and and ha- has the correct answer. He didn't know it, but it was passed on to him without the teacher noticing. He is now getting out of this this rather embarrassing and and kind of a taxing situation. That is clearly what the movie is going for. However, it kind of contradicts my, my in- initial reaction of the scene. Okay, so maybe I have missed something in the director's cut. So was there a mysterious line somewhere when I went to the kitchen not, for five, not five seconds? Not mysterious, the least. Like, like Bocha, Bocha, I'm not happy in this relationship because Bocha is a dumb nut and I just want to have a kissy kiss with you in the car. No, 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 not, not, nothing off the show. But like, well, well, to give the gist up already here. In in the car scene when now adult Tato meets the now adult Elena, they ask. What Bocia does. Elena remarks that he is a politician. And that mm. kind of ties down with, with 
the previous the, the, the school scene, basically every scene with Pocho, and becomes a really hilarious remark that no matter how goddamn <laughs> dumb you are, you can be a successful politician. Indeed. That's democracy, I suppose. Yeah, the, the democracy quotation marks Italian has and yeah. is kind of a funny place every now and then. Yeah, very funny. Hilarious. Theater. Back to theater. So it cuts from the pointer clobbering of the classroom to hammering of the film reel. And Toto is fascinated by the projector, of course. Extremely fascinated by the projector. Who is who is nine year old and that interested in, in projectionists life or the projection? But I found it quite remarkable. Unless, well, the film suggests that uh, Toto is some kind of a child genius, of course, able to use all the switches and play pranks on this projectionist all the time. I, I don't know. I was that fascinated with with the projection tools mm. at, at that time. I didn't study them, and I've never understood how a film projector works. Not, not truly. I just read a couple of notes from here and there. I don't have any, any kind of... Or, or, experience and i couldn't operate one myself at least not at this moment but i have always been interested in in how the projection works when you were nine yeah okay (laughs) more power to you like it 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 is in many ways it it is a fascinating piece of technology and uh even to a nine-year-old it's it's almost almost something magical because yeah, yeah. The, in in on top of simply the act of projecting a movie, like like the technical aspects, uh, knowing and understanding this very complex technical machine, when you are a kid, there also is ties into the notion of you being in this dark room and this magnificent movie being displayed in on in front of your eyes, and there there is something. There, there is a there, there is a connection that you can develop as a child into the experience of seeing a movie within a theater that you kind of lose as an adult. And when you are a kid, that connection and that experience can feel almost like magic, which in turn turns the projectionist into a magician, someone who has has something more than your childlike mind can even comprehend and it turns into this this spectacle that you experience it's it's notion that that films that tackle the experience of viewing cinema kind of a remark every now and so often it's it's also something that is played even though to a much lesser degree for example also in last action hero yeah yeah resisting the urge to do arnold schwarzenegger impression but you know what kind of an impression I could do out here, listening to this increasing noise from the hallway. I could go dress up a little bit, put some makeup on, and do the no running in the hallway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm tempted. But hey, uh, the, the theater is running something else, though. We have John Wayne in Stagecoach. Any thoughts on Stagecoach? Have you seen it? I, I have. It's... it's... A classic piece of Western cinema, even though not entirely unproblematic one. Okay, black people something. 
Say no more. He, more, more than that, Indians something. Mm-hmm. Or that. In, Indians being kind of the red skin devils in all the westerns back in the day. So like John Wayne's filmography is is filled with movies that, even though are are real masterpieces, and I'm not saying they are evil movies and you're a bad person for for loving them, but they do every so often have some really kind of a troubling well aspects, individual things here and there, which kind of rub you wrong way with modern sensibilities. This is something that happens with with hell of a lot of old cinema, especially old yeah. American cinema. Like you can have the whole discussion also revolving around Clint Eastwood movies, like for example the Dirty Harry franchise, which also has some really interesting things to say. This uh, cinema, the ambience there, it's a nightmare for any cinema goer, especially for us. You know, loud audience reacting to everything, throwing stuff, even whatever that black material was that was thrown at the spitter's face. Yeah, but then again, you know, it it, it depends where you are coming from. Like, like, to you, that's a nightmarish environment, the Express movie. Oh, yeah. To, to, to uh, Americans, that's the cinema theater today. Oh, yeah? Uh, yeah. Constant noises, somebody's on, on his, his smartphone. Everybody's chatting. Somebody is is throwing a goddamn full pizza on your face. Yeah, fortunately, we Finns are not quite there yet. That, thank God we never will be. Yeah, I've seen some kind of a cultural problems every now and then where somebody might get too excited uh, talking to cell phone in the beginning minutes of the movie and then the audience in Finland goes, shut the fuck up, shut the fuck up. <laughs> God bless him for that. <laughs> it's always a moment to behold when they get that guy out of there and you have, then you have the audience clapping, not for the end credits, but the, for this moment. Yeah, so we have affluent upstairs crowd, one who is spitting venom. And uh, do you buy that uh, a kind of a kid like Toto would want to stay watching films meant so much for adults or... Or is it more like the fascination with really both the movies and the projection? I, I suppose it is. That's what the film wants to say at this early stage. There's a documentary about the Resistance, uh, Congresso de la Resistenza, Congress of Resistance is what it says on the screen. And I believe the documentary's name is Italians Do Not Forget. But the crowd seems to be kind of disinterested in this, and they would rather not delve in the real events of the past. They would just rather be entertained by fiction, which is what happens in many cases. Yeah. Well, especially Toto is losing the concentration, turns back, and there's the, the interesting shot of the, the lion face of the theater now getting, you know, movement. The lion's mouth is moving. It's what Toto is imagining in his head at this moment that, you know, I guess it's uh, telling the audience that the guy has a very vivid imagination as well, and for whatever gain for us an, as an audience viewer. Well, it kind of goes to show you the... I, or I took the, the lion face thing as, once again, uh, to, to showcase you that the movie experience is magic. Feeling that a child can get in within a movie theater, or, or that I myself act at least got when when I went to movies 
as a as a real little kid. Mordor about a Toto's reaction into the newsreel, as you remarked, is actually the adult audience's reaction and the fact that also the adults in in the in the theater are completely disinterested about the newsreel, which should be kind of the more important visual experience to them, because that's something that relates something real and something that can actually have an effect on their lives. And instead, they, they also the adults completely disregard the news and just want to see, see the escapist fiction piece. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of the juxtaposition that I think uh, as well the scene is making that makes sense. That you know they want to get back to the fantasy land ASAP. Yeah, ma- 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 makes sense, but also is is kind of a sad, sad thing, a sad notion for the film to make. I don't know if it is during those times when you have had some bloody battles, you want to kind of relax for a bit. I I, I would say it is like the, the more important thing would still be. To be vigilant, if if you know, for example, the war would break out again, and you would once again be drafted to military. That sure. that's something that has some real life consequences, possibly for your life. And I would say that that even if you would feel emotionally exhausted, having just come from one war, you you should still be interested to follow what happens in the world, just in case, you know, maybe, maybe another draft would happen and it it would be your ass off to the front lines. Yeah, this whole name of the documentary, Italians, do not forget. That kind of smells to me like a big propaganda piece. So, but yeah, nevertheless, that's the human tendency that uh, propaganda or not, we tend to gravitate towards entertainment more than information, unfortunately. Yeah, and and propaganda or not, it still makes the, the case that what Italians in the end want to do is precisely that. They want to forget. And, well, well we, we God, God damn it, we, we are a cinema podcast who looks movies from from decades ago. In, instead of, you know, talking about the latest Marvel movie or whatever is going on, in the cineplex so we also as a podcast we very much are our podcast that does not forget <laughs> we are in very very much in in the remembering past uh, yeah. a, a ballpark and I, I don't know maybe maybe that affects me maybe that's why i kind of do find it always kind of a sad when a nation and individuals don't want to remember and want to forget something. Oh, indeed. La Terra Trema, uh, The Earth Trembles, is the next film that is shown in theater Visconti 1948, so-called masterpiece. It's a story located in Sicily where we have fishermen who live at the mercy of greedy wholesalers, and one family risks everything and buys a boat to skip the wholesalers and operate independently. However, you know, the dialect used in the film is something no one in the mainland could understand. So Visconti added a written inter- intertitle part. But of course, on top of that, these viewers, at least in the film, they are also illiterate. So 
in real life the film was refused by many popular cinemas because of this reason, so because of the language barrier, uh, having to do mostly, I believe, with the dialect, though. Yeah, and and in here also works kind of a, a political statement from the director's side. Because the film itself is, is kind of political, it's very anti-capitalistic piece of cinema, telling a story about fishermen who try to go around the big business and cut off the middleman and instead instead sell their fish directly. So mm. on, on that way, it's, it's anti-capitalistic. And anti-capitalism, it was something that was very prominent in Italian neoliberal cinema during this time. And with audience's reaction to the earth trembles here and the fact that the, it also showcases how the audience can't understand it. And when you juxtapose that, how the village in in the film operates and continues operate, you actually get the notion that the village itself is unable to take the message from the film they are seeing. This capitalism is not good for you and you should be a free entrepreneur and cut away from the big business. With that, the movie kind of argues that the neoliberal face of, of Italian cinema, it in the end, it failed. Italian neorealism, yes. yeah. It it failed to reach the audiences and teach the lesson. Yeah. Uh, there is also a Charlie Chaplin slapstick movie. And there is also a mafia boss of the town. And uh, has a full control of employment, apparently. And this is the message of the Laterra. And uh, Alfredo comes to help Toto being disciplined by his mother for the spending of 50 liras to the movie theater. But this situation, which is uh, kind of good for everybody, I, su- I suppose. Mother saves face, but understands that this is a charity case on some level, at least. She understands that the, this is this money that uh, Alfredo gives to her is not something that was found in the theater. And instead, it's just coming from Alfredo's own pocket. Another Federico Fellini reference is with the town crazy village idiot. Because Fellini always had some, such of a character in his films. Can't confirm, I haven't seen every film of Fellini. But um, for those who don't know, the, Fellini, of course, was nominated for 12 Academy Awards and won four in the category of Best Foreign Language Film and the most for any director in the history of Academy, actually. Now there's the funeral, in which Toto is joining as well, because uh, he's the help, helper boy of the church. And Toto saves some valuable time because uh, Alfredo is also there on the fields and gets a bike ride by faking a leg injury. Just like I said, this guy likes to cheat older people. And Alfredo definitely is uh, starting to build throughout the movie as some kind of a father figure. Father figure and a father replacement for the father who is no more. Now, this is kind of giving, giving like a glimpse of what's going to happen on a bigger scale. Because the Toto film collection now catches fire at home and gets chided for that. No more cinema for Toto, says the mother. And of course later it's going on full flames in the theater itself. Alfredo is giving in the theater his thoughts on his work and how it's not really glamorous and it's hard manual labor. Toto here playing around with the switches while Alfredo relieves himself. So he has learned pretty much everything by just watching and... Uh, this is an interesting plot point that is uh, extremely easy to miss because there's this one Neapolitan 
called Don Chicho, who has won the football lottery. So he's kind of a foreigner. And Sicily, of course, is a southern Italian island separated from the mainland. And the joke here is that Chicho, Chicho, whatever, is from the so-called south, from Naples in the mainland. And Naples is, is seen as a more of a backwards part of the mainland, the south of the south in that sense, in a geopolitical sense. And one guy in the theater points out that it's always the northerners who get lucky, when in fact he's kind of a southerner. Town crazy person is mistreating the paintings, what looks like paintings done there. Interesting points of focus that this film is sometimes giving you. And then there's the lies treatment of the boys. I suppose it's just kind of a montage that is going on. It doesn't have a specific purpose, but I wouldn't be surprised if everything has purpose in every frame of this film on some level for the director. Well, you kind of in the in this type of movies, you also just have to showcase the audience how the village lives. Yeah. And kind of show you their everyday life. Yep. That, that of course, being something that may have fed into the whole... The movies is using nostalgia to win the yeah. audience's on its favor argument. The good old times when you had lice all over your body. But yeah, fifth grade exit exams, back to the classroom it is. So the post-war illiteracy rates exemplified by this scene. Very interesting and well-performed scene once again. It's probably my favorite scene because this, this chemistry between Toto and Alfredo is so pleasure to watch. So Alfredo here trying to get the answers from Toto, but it's not forthcoming before Toto will get the right to operate the projection. Next film in the theater is uh, Dr. Chickill and Mr. Hyde, one of several of those films. Uh, this was from the mid-40s, during which we also have this couple's, couple subplot, man in lower row and a woman in higher row. And the, this is suggesting that they're at, attracted to each other. On first viewing, I really didn't even notice i was just assuming that you know that, that there's some kind of a friendly gaze coming from at least one person from the upstairs to the lower row since everybody seems to be kind of enjoying the film but yeah there's something more going on here yeah they most definitely become lovers in in course of the film on top of that there is also kind of an economical situation and stance to be taken because the persons on the upper row are the more financially secure, the, the more richer members of community and the ones who are in the lower row or, or in the pit are, are the, the, the less well-off monetary-wise. So there is this kind, kind, of a, kind of a Romeo and Juliet love story between this girl who comes from the higher social class and and with this boy from the lower social class and that kind of a mirrors the, the love story between Toto and Elena where there is the exact same dynamic but with different results true good point there's one schoolboy whose father is apparently a communist and therefore unable to be employed in the town because the mafia boss controls everything so they emigrate to Germany. Just one more example of what kind of a life could have been or was in those times. And there's footage of the Russian campaign. The commentary track suggests that Toto sees his father in the reels and therefore puts a marker on the reel to edit out the death out of the film. But uh, I just, I don't know, like there is no 
evidence as far as I can see that it was his father, but it was definitely some of the victims from that little failed trip. Well, it, it, it is made clear that also Toto's father has died. That is made clear, yes. Yeah, and when it comes to editing the newsreel, most likely the newsreel never is actually edited within the film, like really. Yeah. Yeah. And and the whole marking this one segment from the newsreel to be edited out is simply the wish. Yeah. Wish here, the inner wish that I wish I could just, you know, edit the death out of a life and have kind of the similar type of perfect life that you can see in film. Exactly. Yeah, Mother and Toto go get the list of the dead, I believe. Or, or at least here from from some official has has their has Toto's father died or or who had died who are on the list and something that i completely missed was that well there there is the vehicle went gone with the wind poster but uh, this is a reference to what alfredo said before that uh, that Toto's father looked like clark gable so there's the connection for you if you missed it yeah, you the, the audience. I don't remember if audience ever really sees Toto's father. So you kind of don't know what his dad looks like. You are not even sure. Does Toto remember what his dad looks like? So this one now worn out poster poster of Gone with the Wind might be in the worst case. It might be the the kind of only depiction that the young young Toto can in any way have about his father well what was the war like one and a half years so Toto would have been maybe seven so probably i, I guess remembers, six but... or seven mm -hmm. around the time when his his dad shipped off of course depending on the fact that his father was shipped off precisely when the war started and was drafted then and there wasn't for, for, for him, for uh, something like a mandatory military service or any kind of a pre-draft that would have taken him out of home even sooner. Next film is The Fireman of Vichu. This was a smash hit film with a comic actor also called Toto. And the couple subplot is continuing. The man from the lower row has been elevated to the balcony level to this affluent lady. Of course, this fireman movie is now foretelling the fire in the theater and audience is growing restless now at outside the second showing is not available in the theater but uh, the crowd protests that they want to see more and alfredo some for some reason is friendly and helps out this crazy crowd italian urban design is kind of a theatrical in nature so the outdoor projection seems like a natural choice here in that sense as well and Town idiot is uh, spewing this line, the square is mine, don't joke about it, it makes me mad. Uh, the film catches fire, and the lion is spitting also fire. Uh, <clears throat> Toto saves Alfredo in the scene, and this is the first time where we have the flash of flash to adult Toto, once again, after the beginning of the whole storytelling. And it's the end of innocence for the film. Now we switch to the adulthood and themes of lust and such. Yeah, there is still the burnt down theater that we see the guy who won the lottery Gigio, now is uh, eyeing the theater and is able to rebuild it we have the new theater uh, Nuovo Cinema Paradiso yeah which is also the real name of the film 
Uh, but that the name isn't that used for the director's cut? Well, Just it's... The, yeah, there's two titles for the film, Cinema Paradiso and then the Nuevo Cinema Paradiso. Uh, yeah, and, and from what I've been able to gather about, about the two names, the Nuovo Cinema Paradiso is the original Italian title of the film. Okay. And, and Cinema Paradiso is, once again, I got my crazy hands on, on the film Weinstein version of the title. It's, well, it it's, makes sense. Yeah. It makes sense. It's easier. Yeah. But yeah, like, like you said, the cinema building, the theater is being rebuilt. And with that, the, the whole dramatic event of, of the theater burning down in the first place, it kind of a, becomes purely an inconvenience in this movie. It burns down and two minutes later it's yeah. brand new and we are at the opening. <laughs> yeah, no problemo. There's no yeah, not even it, time it, to it, kind it, of contemplate. The, the whole burning is kind of like blink and you miss it or deal. <laughs> yeah. Except for Alfredo, who will never blink again. Yeah, ouch. Yeah, the fire department is barely there when already the building is being eyed and rebuilt. Yeah, but that's the kind of the Italian work safety for you. You have highly flammable nitrate film, and next to that, you don't have water bucket or extinguisher or anything else. Yeah, I wonder what happened there and what were the repercussions for poor Alfredo after this. Uh, I suppose the way that the glass or whatever it is between there, between between the theater and the projector was positioned in such a way that it just got too much heat to the film reels. It it, it could be. Uh, the nitrate film that they are using in Toto's childhood, in, in reality, it was highly flammable. Like it, it, it was basically the film reels of, of that of those days where a fire hazard waiting to happen. Yeah, well, no wonder we are having kind of a shortage of those old movies every now and then. So officially, Kichio, Chichio, Chichio, however you pronounce that name, is the projectionist, but Toto gets the money for the job. So there is no child labor law problems apparently and but th- th- there there is that th- there is the law problem but Sitio simply goes around it with his connections to the city hall which yeah. i guess he has been able to make ever since he won the lottery and became rich since money buys friends from high places yeah the unknown annoying trespasser uh, person coming from naples to sicily Suddenly has a lot of connections. And kind of becomes the, the major force for good within the community. Since had there not been the trespasser in, in the town, the town would never have had a new film theater. This one yep. arguably even better than the last one. Yeah, there's many good reasons to treat this guy kindly. And Priest blesses the new theater and Priest no longer able to put on the censorship on the film, and now the kissing commences on the screen, and people can hardly believe it. Yep. And and with the, all, all that, there is kind of this this notion of of cinema being freed from within the confines of the church. It it originally starts with Alberto's act when he he blasts the movie also to the to the wall outside of the theater, so that those who are not able to get in 
Sartre Theatre can still see the picture. In in that act, the film is kind of a being broken out from the inside and thus from the reach of the church. That leads into mm. the fire, which leads into the new theater, which now operates without the censorshipical control of the church. So there is kind of this this the language lineage and and continuation of of freeing the art. And if you, if you want to kind of read more in, into that that notion, uh, ever since the fire, Alberto becomes officially blind. But his blindness is kind of this mysterious sort where he, even though he is blind, he every now so often makes remarks which hints into the fact that in some way he's able to see. Like, for example, when now blind Alberto makes the notion to Toto that the film is out of out of focus. And so it is. Alberto has no ability to see this physically, but somehow he knows it. And later on, his, his blindness kind of uh, appears to transcend into even more higher, even more divine way of seeing. As it's kind of a hinted that Alberto now is able to see into the future. This is the rationality that plays behind, especially in the later third of the film, when Alberto starts to to affect and take control over Toto's life, pushing him, making decisions that push Toto into a certain direction. And, And with this kind of a divine way of seeing this divine sight that Alberto maybe has. You can take the reading that it's some kind of a divine gift bestowed upon Alberto by God as a, as a reward for the fact that Alberto originally broke the cinema out of church's control and to the people as, as art should be, free and uncontrolled. And ungoverned. Yeah, the whole Alberto's motivation for kind of out of the blue giving these suggestions for Toto how to live his life, it will get the extremely darker look into it once you see the director's cut. And I mean, there's even two decisions that he kind of made Toto to do, which could both be seen as Alfredo, maybe not getting anywhere in his own life, kind of denying the pleasures from also Toto. Kind of, or, or, or then it really is kind of a, a loving act, a paternal act, where Alberto either has the foresight into the future or then the higher understanding now how, what kind type of a person Toto is and how things can affect each other. Yeah, And this way... Alberto is able to start a chain of events that that you can say are harmful for Toto or or then they are good for Toto. It's kind of a depends on how you want to read Toto's yeah. life in as an as an adult. More on that a bit later. There is uh, Anna from 1951. The whole synopsis for the film kind of suggests kind of gives nice glue for the film once again to say something about the church, because IMDb says, quote, Anna is a nurse and a nun whose history catches up on her. So kind of pushing the church altogether out of this film. 
This film also has the lovely song Silvana Mangano El Negro Zumbon. I have heard this many times, but uh, yeah, I'm not sure if it's originating from here or where it's coming from. Nevertheless, it's a wonderful song to listen on some, some soft jazz night to be included on your Spotify playlist. Yeah, so now the kissing is on screen and Priest says that he will not watch pornography. Uh, assumedly, it then leaves the theater. Alfredo, Alfredo, he's back without his eyes though. But uh, this happens right after we think that Alfredo is dead because the, the chair is empty. But then Alfredo comes here into the old projectionist room once again. And teenager Toto begins. There's kind of a crafty transition once again from the child to the teenager. And Bridget Bardo film is next, but let's spend a moment to discuss Marco Leonardi. Marco Leonardi, who is also known for Once Upon a Time in Mexico, and several probably more quality films. There's also one called Like Water for Chocolate, also a film I haven't seen, but uh, one of the great films from coming from his direction. So... Do you have anything else on Leonardi? Yeah, and on, on top of those, there's also the Maradona, the Hand of God biopic of, of the football player, which I myself, but when it came out 2007, it was, so at least in, in all the circulation, it was a big deal. Can't say if it's any good, but, but a huge ruckus was made out of the movie and it coming out. Okay. Yeah. And a Bridget Bardot moment for us. We see the Mafia boss dying watching a Mafia film, Little Caesar from 1931. Are you familiar with this one? With Little Caesar, yeah, I, I am. It's, it's one of those golden age of Hollywood, good old gangster flicks, which most likely doesn't do anything for the modern audiences outside of film buffs and, and critics and podcasters. At the same time, we are offered prostitute services inside the theater. So things have gotten kind of, quote-unquote, immoral after church has lost its influence. Yeah, it, it has become a full-service theater nowadays. Yeah. I wonder how these things went in like normal theater. Of course, one of these people working in the theater does not approve some of the teenage boys having some kind of a wanky-wanks time there, but... Uh, that probably was way more common than it is nowadays when we can do the wanky wanks at home. I, I make no comment on the subject. Oh, don't you want to expand on it? Okay. <laughs> Most definitely not. You, 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 are, you, you can go ahead and have this subject matter all by yourself. Okay, so every day at 8.17am I have scheduled on my calendar that... Okay. No, but uh, film is no longer also flammable and we watch Evie uh, Teloni. Have you seen Evie Teloni, 1953? <laughs> And also are fitting because they are more or less from those times, although kind of the years. The release dates of these films go kind of all over the place, but in the 30s, 40s, 50s range, nevertheless. 
And now the side story kind of reaches it, its conclusion. Uh, they have now a kid, lovebirds, on the upper floor. And Spitter once finally gets what's coming for him and gets some kind of a something, brown substance coming on his face. Yeah, I, I took it that it was supposed to be something like a soiled diaper, mm. which they throw at the uh, Spitter's face. Uh, kind of once again to showcase how the town itself has changed now that the church no longer controls the cinema. Like previous, yeah. back in the old days, the Spitter was untouchable on, on the higher row and was a- able to abuse his situation by spitting on on the head or, or, or below him. And now, now that the cinema no longer is being owned by a hierarchy or, or by an institution, and it's more by a fellow man, man for, to fellow men type of situation, now the spitter no longer is untouchable and can have his comeuppance. Apart from shootings, there is also a bull being stabbed, and that is filmed by Toto. Also films Elena, that he sees seemingly randomly around the town, just stalking yeah, the camera. Yeah, then at home juxtaposes the cut between, of Elena and, and the bull being slaughtered to make some really troubling art house. <laughs> and makes you question whether or not he had inserted like music on this, this 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 documentary or was it coming from the film itself because I'm not sure because when they watch the documentary later on then Alfred knows that it's a lady and I thought it was becoming because of the soft music being played but then I think the film is suggesting otherwise that it's just a tone of voice or something even though the guy is not even speaking but he can get it I I took it that it's once again it's it's Alfredo's kind of a weird blind I, I took it once again one of those moments which hint that in some level Alfredo is still able to see. Yeah, spidey senses tingling. A spidey senses tingling or some kind of a divine sight, something, something. That the blindness is kind of kind of the element that makes most uh, the, the least logical sense in in the film in the end, and kind of the most mystical feature of the story. Yeah. I wonder if it's uh, if it's really typical for Italian guys to speak so softly, but I really like this <laughs> this uh, portrayal of Toto in this teenager face. It's always like Elena, <laughs> this type of voice, which is happening once again here. Elena drops something, and a bunch of guys race to see who is going to be able to deliver this dropped item to Elena, and of course it's Toto, and Toto is being kind of a dumpster fire next to Elena, and unable to tell what he's all about, what he wants to say. Uh, but evidently Elena doesn't really care, because he's always in a, she's always in a hurry to get to the next task. But hey, here is the documentary watching. Uh, these scenes are a little bit in different order here, in director's cut. Uh, something to do probably with the, also the, the scene where, <laughs> for some unknown goddamn reason, Toto is shown using the prostitution services of the theater before he gets fully his sights on Elena. So you have to have the prostitution stuff first and then move to Elena. And in the theatrical cut doesn't really care because, you know, there is not this scene. I, I don't know why you have to show it. Some kind of a, is it 
trying to show some kind of a moral corruption or moving on from the church age of his life. And what is also the point of seeing random fucking in the director's cut altogether, where you have this guy who is delivering this uh, reel of film from one theater to the other, and uh, he seem, deems that the most important thing at this moment is to just fuck in the woods and not deliver the film on time. Kind of amazing. It, well, where the fucking in, in the director's cut, it, it does kind of, it, it does showcase you why Toto's plan doesn't work. And the, the whole Toto's plan altogether is, is to showcase how Toto kind of comes, tries to, to take part in, uh, in, in the community and the business side of the theater. And this way to be something more than just mere simple projectionist. So you're seeing Elena in this uh, real guy, uh, the, or the, the story of Elena and Toto in this real guy who is just randomly fucking a lady in the forest? No, no, no. In 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 random fucking, I see an explanation why the guy actually fucks it up so so totally, literally and figuratively. The one job that he had to do. Mm. Yeah. Okay. I can see that. For me, it just kind of jumped on me. <laughs> a bit of a confusing moment. Uh, one more of these awkward meetings on the street with Elena. Toto runs to see Elena and says, that beautiful day, isn't it? Because can't think of anything else of meaning to say. And Elena just leaves the scene. Doesn't have t- time to talk this kind of bozo. And also, Toto calls himself stronzo. In this soft Italian voice. Which means asshole. But it's uh, softened up for the... American audiences because nobody who is speaking English would use the word asshole necessarily in this moment. But the direct translation is thrown, so it's asshole. Story of soldier and princess is here, Henrik. Alfredo repeats that the blue-eyed are the worst. Yeah, so, okay, story of soldier and princess. And the key kind of in the story, I suppose, is that, like it said in the commentary track, quote, romantic, or more or less with these words, that romantic love predicated on desire that can never be fulfilled, because fulfillment would mean disappointment. Yeah, and this is what uh, Alfredo is trying to avoid from putting Toto into, you could say. Next film is Catene, Chains, 1949. Everybody seems to be very emotional for this film, everyone crying. One guy knows all the lines. And this is, once again, I think one of those caricaturic and overemphasized ways of reacting to film, although, yes... It was the early days, so people might have some kind of more stronger emotions towards the cinema than maybe we nowadays do have, because we have screens every goddamn where. I I don't know about that. I mean, I I would say that cinema still can have extremely strong emotion with its audiences. It can, but look at these people. They are like completely lunatics in this audience. I really (laughs) don't see anything that strange here in the end. I, I mean... Well, well, you obviously are 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 the wrong person to ask ask this this question, since you you maintain that that emotions are nothing but a fluke in, in, <laughs> in your brain chemistry, and you have vowed to rid yourself of such nonsense. But for our listening audiences, I can propose the question: <laughs> Is there actually a, one, a film that you have seen so many times that has had such of an influence with you that you actually have learned the lines? Is there a film 
that you have watched and you know simply couldn't have helped yourself stop yourself from starting to cry when you have been watching it because i well, most definitely i i have those experiences and the well, hench, i can actually res- uh, you know resonate with how the audience acts when they see movies let's in- see how you resonate and we go next time together to see some film and if you pull off so strong emotions during those scenes i'll be the first to throw the popcorn can at you <laughs> well not knowing knowing that this is by my dear boy in this podcast i i know that if we would ever try this you would try to cheat <laughs> it and you would just you know take me in the into some independent film theater that is showing some really shit steven seagal film that has no emotions yes. at all in it we could laugh together and have some emotions <laughs> like that. Yeah, so... Duping the priest. Toto gets his moment with Elena, goes to, in fact, confess his love in this confession box, if you will. The classic love story, Henrik. This might be also what is pushing people away from the film. And it was apparently pushing some critics away from the film, that they were not really into this, you know, this classic vibe love story, keeping it as simple as it is on the screen. I, on my end, I I don't really inherently have a problem with it. To me, on the other hand, the fairytale nature of Toto's and Elena's romance is, I would say, to me, it's the most problematic element of the film. How dare you? Because How it's so o- o- overly simplistic. And contents well, the, the film itself also is is simplistic in its nature, but I felt that, uh, that the romance is, especially the or or more, more notably, the romance during the teenage years when they fall in love. That is so fairy tale that that was too much for me, especially when Toto in the end is able to woo Elena by by copying the story of the soldier and the princess and by simply appearing outside of Elena's window every night for over a year and that somehow works <laughs> yeah well, like that that, I... that 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 was too much for me well the time is not specified henrik it could, it could, it could be that he is just there for like 10 minutes and then leaves because hardly anyone could be there for the entire Evening. It, it 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 could it could be. I mean, it is made blatantly obvious that he isn't huh? there twenty four seven. He it, it's just a pattern that he repeats huh? every single day huh? for over a year. So fine, 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 fine. I'm I uh, no no problem there. But the fact that that stunt even works, in in my opinion, is is pushing it too far. It's romantic. It's classical. It's cute. It's kind of overly childish. Well, isn't love kind of childish? And that could uh, kind of spark the, you know, the excitement in the relationship in the early stages. Kind of, but not that childish. Mm. Like, that shit wouldn't fly in anywhere except in cinema. It's it's, it's, it's the same, same thing as, as you doing something that, that you see, actually. Or... <sighs> You you can see a different take on this exact same same stunt in in American dramatic comedies where the gist usually is 
And I, I bet you have also seen this trope. That there are two characters, character A and character B. Character A does some really shitty thing to character B, feels bad about it, and then goes outside of character B's apartment with a goddamn boombox and plays some shitty pop song. We are the people or, or some shit like that from a cassette. Usually in rain, and that somehow fixes everything. Yeah, well, it doesn't doesn't fly with me. This film is all about the emotions. It could be the feeling some of uh, feeling that the plot is too dumb. That could also be an emotion that the film wants to evoke. Maybe, maybe, but it it doesn't work with me. And this is like like I said, this is the see the the part of the narrative that I have most problems with. It's not a huge problem. I'm not trying to. start a fire around the film and start throwing rocks at it but if, if i would kind of kind of have to point out as i often do in in the podcast the the sequences that least work with me and the teenage romance between toto and elena most definitely is that moment for me in in cinema paradiso Okay, okay, okay. This is the state of affairs nowadays in this podcast that I'm defending some kind of a love plot, whereas you're throwing rocks at it. This product really has gotten weird. Yeah, I think we should just have one podcast episode of just explaining where do we stand, what is going on here, who are you, who are we, what what is reality? Yeah, what is the Matrix? Okay. Yeah. But New Year's Eve, blinders first open, but then close on Toto. But just maybe a minute later, when he's in their projection booth, Elena arrives and love is in the air after over 100 days of waiting. God damn, Elena. I just felt that this is something Elena did by just being nice. She just wanted to do something and just... Uh, but I, I'm not sure if she was in love at this moment. You could read it. Well, I, I guess she is because she most definitely is in the next scene. Yeah, kind of weird. There's the Italian ritual of getting rid of old glass and pottery at New Year's, and therefore you have people throwing all the glass items out. Kind of dangerous. Not going to spend my New Year's anywhere in Italy. Who's gonna clean that? Stroms. So okay. We have a love montage: picnic, fields, birthday, driving. But then Elena's padre, Senor Mendola, appears. With a car, he's the director of a bank and gives a ride back, but also seems to give a black eye for Toto for that service. And that's, of course, one of these, once again, we're dealing with this rich, poor, uh, social class hierarchy systems. Uh, yep, the notion here really being that there's nothing inherently wrong with Toto except his social class, and that is the... Kind of the only problem why Elena's father does not approve. Yeah, fucker. Like, like uh. mentioned, this is the the mirror opposite of of the situation of the previous couple, where they eventually got together. The dude got raised up into a higher social status to through their relationship, and they eventually got kid. And everything was happy and jolly. In in here, that transitioning from social class and that acceptance between the classes does not come into fruition. So it goes. We have more movies. Arena Imperia, summer outdoors theater, where we watch Poor but Beautiful, Poveri Mabelli. Have you seen it? That one I have at 
some point years ago. I certainly know how to pick my co-hosts. Jeez. There is the toilet discussion, so to speak. Toto and uh, Elena, they are separated by a wall of the men and women's toilet, and they are able to discuss before they once again separate. Toto is seemingly desperate, and letter arrives. We hear the letter of Elena. She has to move with family to Palermo because of university, and sure enough, Toto cannot afford higher education to join her in any way. Yeah. There's another outdoors film. Yeah, with the toilet, you once again got also got the visual reinforcement of of the theme of the social class divide because the toilets also are quite different. Like the ladies' side, where Elena is, it's really nice, European modern, and and on Toto's side, it's basically it's it's a hole on the ground. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have something against hole on the ground toilets? I fucking hate them. I've I passionately hate them. I, I I have used them a couple of times when I've been traveling. They are still, for example, in, in you can you can find them like for example in Egypt in, in Morocco. Parts. Yeah, Morocco is also good example. They are not super useful anymore, thank God. But yeah. especially if you go off road, still find some gas station or some cheap, not that well off cafeteria which still uses these so i i have a little experience and i just can't stand them i also can't can't stand the the, that the other version of of the exact same idea where you have this kind of kind of a ditch which have been made but there's this long line and you can just you know pick your place along that line and just you know piece and shit on that on the dictator line. Yeah, like you know, as long as we're on the subject, I have kind of a plus points for them as well. But most of them are just so cold and uncomfortable. But but I like it in the sense that you have you know the normal position to do your thing instead of sitting on some kind of a stool, which will uh, ultimately possibly even kill you because the the sitting position is so unnatural that kind of I don't know how the mechanics work, but the uh, Eventually, your system might just fail after doing that for the entirety of your life. That's why so many people also die annually on the on their own toilet seats. The more you know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. This is this is a film podcast, everybody. <laughs> yeah, this is coming from a doctor her, herself. So, yeah. So. Yeah. Let, let's 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 spend the next hour and a half talking about toilet dynamics. Well, I can. Share more toilets. <laughs> okay, <laughs> we have all these toilets in the field Yeah. In Morocco, well, I once went to a restaurant and I didn't happen to have cash at that moment. And of course, when I exited this place, then they started to ask from me money. Well, you used the toilet. Why didn't you pay for it? Oh, I didn't see any sign anywhere. But it was once again one of those ways to just cash out from these rich goddamn Westerners, so to speak. But unfortunately, I got there without any incidents. They believed my case, or they just gave up. Okay, moving yeah. on back to the movie. But but you di- did use the toilet, am I correct? Unfortunately, that was my yeah. only option. <laughs> and and with that story, this podcast is officially and literally a shit show. <laughs> we finally reached that. <laughs> God damn it! <laughs> Bottom of the barrel should have been the name of the show. <laughs>
Yeah, so so the next film is Ulysses from 1954. Have you seen it? That I uh, most definitely have. Well, like that, that is, I, I, I would have to say the most seen film of the movies within this movie. Mm. Everything in color as well, starring Kirk Douglas. Neo mythological film, apparently from those times that they did in the 60s or 50s as well. Uh, Ellen arrives at this moment, storm. This is pretty much the highest moment in the film for the couple. After this, everything goes downstairs. So enjoy this romantic, classic romanticism while you can. Elena promises that she will come uh, on Thursday around 5 o'clock to the bus, but no Elena. In the director's cut, uh, Alfredo looks after cinema when Toto visits Elena's address and goes to knock on the door, but the mother... I believe is the one who is not opening, and Elena is not even there. Yeah, I'm guessing that's supposed to be Elena's mom. Mm. An army time it is. Toto put on solitary confinement for his strong language over the phone, I believe, and while trying to track down Elena. And letters to Elena have been returned. Somehow he expected there to be there ten days, uh, but uh, he was there for the full service time, I believe, for the one year. Yeah, the he he was supposed to be somehow faint to be unqualified for the military service. I don't remember exactly what the excuse was supposed to be. What was he like too thin, too short, too stupid, too Italian? But but there was supposed to be some reason why he sh- everybody thought that he would be disqualified from the army, but he would still have to show his face in the barracks. Therefore, the whole 10 days, which then turns into full year. Yeah, makes sense, yeah. year later, arrives back to the town square. Everything is now more desolate than a new projectionist is there giving a lazy eye at him. Goes to then visit Alfredo, trying to kind of connect with the good old days. And kind of, a, yeah, and Alfredo is kind of reclusive lately, Toto finds. Alfredo and Toto go by the seas, as Alfredo wishes. The jokes of the army times, what I suppose is going on, is not really working on Alfredo or somehow just dismisses that and has something more urgent to say. Nobody knows where Elena is, of course, and the rusty anchors, perhaps then symbolizing Toto's life. Anchor at your rusty anchor in this forlorn town and maybe it's time to get the hell out of here. But in the director's cut, here there is uh, additional explanation. For example, Toto explains that he understands why the soldier left in this uh, story, the soldier and princess. Quote, she might have not kept her promise. That would have been too cruel. It would have killed him. This way, at least for 99 nights, he lived in hope that she'd be his. End quote. Next is uh, when we see Toto on the stairs trying to make the decision of his life. And cuts to, once again, to the middle-aged Toto in a similar situation. Again, one of those cuts. Train station scene, where we share goodbyes. Middle-aged Toto begins pretty much here, as Toto arrives with the plane. The knit unwinds. Well, let's just get to the funeral. We get to funeral. And this is where Toto meets uh, Chichio, and he explains how the cinema got closed down six years ago. Times had changed, blah, blah, blah. They seem to always cut down chains. Yeah, I guess that was those times you started to get the VHS more often than you wouldn't. <laughs> and uh, that's the reason for the closure. And yeah, porn, more widely available also. You don't have to do your thing in the theater, as we have noted. If you want more information, you can listen to our porn episode. 
Okay. And uh, the dilapidated cinema paradiso is visited by Toto. Then Toto watches his own documentary, which includes those legendary shots of Elena and the stabbed bull. As a kind of a remorseful discussion with mother, Toto is regretting kind of like leaving the town. Or maybe not, just trying to be nice. I don't know what the hell he's thinking. At. Uh, well, through- m- m- more than leaving the town, Toto never actually, after his leave, Toto never kept contact with, with his mom or sister. Yeah, 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 that's crazy. That's also kind of the damage. Yeah, essentially it's it's Alfredo tells Toto that Toto has to cut those ties for for years back to his, his hometown so that he can cover earn or reach his freedom. If he would have kept contact, he, as Alfredo warns, started and returned back to his hometown town feeling homesick and would never have become the famous director he is not of course and and for for that notion the mom seems to be agreeing with this that that was the, the right decision to make and his mom is not angry about this as that did make toto a famous artist someone whose works and films really matter and, and are important to people. But at the same time, at the same time, there is this small notion it was a bit dickish move to make. Like, as, as Toto's sister remarks in the beginning of the film, it's been decades and Toto hasn't made any contact. Yeah, I think this is the point where Toto should also take some responsibility for his own, action, own actions, as he kind of does. But 30 years later, uh, but uh, evidently this is a damage done, originated from Alfredo. But, well, 30 years is a long time. He could have made some changes to his plans on how he left everybody behind like that. I can't believe also that the whole family would have been on board with this when he left this town. Yeah, may- may- maybe not. The, the, the sister most definitely hasn't been on these scenes in the beginning of the film, when, when the mom and the Toto's sister talk about should they actually phone Toto and let him know of Alfredo's death, the sister is kind of a bitter about the whole matter. Kind of a angrily makes the notion that Toto hasn't kept any contact to us and has, yeah. has forgotten us. So there is emotional damage and not everybody approves, even though Toto's mom approves those actions but uh, with that out of the way it's also it's once again it's hard to say exactly how far you have to go in this social distancing of yourself from your past from your hometown and from your family in order to really break those chains and by by act act of breaking them really becoming free if I would have been Toto, I would have probably tried to leave behind some kind of a message that that uh, would have been left to his mom, and then Elena could have picked up this note wherever she was during those times, and then continue keeping in contact if she would be available. Oh, well, then again, this would just torment the character of Toto in now his new life, just thinking every day, well, will she ever get that message? Will she ever get that message? Yeah, as, as it does in the end, because... Even though Alfredo tells Toto that Toto has to be wary of nostalgia and not get kind of trapped by nostalgia, that's something that Toto is unable to do. 
And mm. so how eventually returns back home. He once again connects with that old nostalgia and his his old flame with Elena. And and you can kinda of see that Toto Toto kinda of relapses on on that front when he returns back home. Yeah, 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 yeah. God, goddamn Toto being away for thirty years and then you come back and you start rebuilding all of these bridges and I think in, in the process breaking some. I think there are some things that you could just leave alone. I don't know what value it brought in the director's cut where we have this uh, infamous car scene where they start kissing and apparently also have sex. Sexy sex, yes. And this is going unbeknownst to, of course, the suggested husband of Elena at that time. I mean, I know nostalgia and yeah, the true love, blah, blah, blah. But still you say that I'm not happy in this current life and it's good to have some sexy sex for one time and then you can leave this town. I don't think this is ever going to work. It's past. Forget it. This is sometimes infuriatingly all over the place in the director's cut. Like, what do you want? Stop. I, I don't know. I, I had no problem with that. I, actually, the the final third of the film is, when, when it comes to the love story, actually my favorite part of the story because I, I feel that that's the most kind of honest and and that that's the logical conclusion and the more realistic side of of, of the love story between Toto and Elena. Uh, well, per- perhaps, but I don't think we needed to see that side because it's a. I I, I think we did. I is... I actually do mm. feel that the love story is is better and stronger off because of the final scenes between Toto and Elena, which showcases to audiences that that the whole fairy tale romance really can't happen anymore that that ship has sailed and but it, Toto it, it, in a, in in a in a sense has been a fool because he hasn't let go, go of of nostalgia because Toto hasn't moved on kinda and kinda not because in both of these cuts you still get the idea that i think better in the theatrical cut that that it's the same thing also that this was never meant to be it never comes into fruition whereas in director's cuts it's just yeah i get that nostalgia trip reference and why the director would want want it to be there but um in in directors in in the theatrical cut the story cuts out and or at least in the international cut the story cuts out so that the since since the last third of the love story is missing in the international, you get the notion that the failing love story didn't in the end have an effect on Toto. Like it doesn't come back to haunt him in the international cut. In the director's cut, on the other hand, the the old flame and not being able to let go of it, it's it's something that in the final stretch of the story it hurts Toto. Yeah, it does. I'm not sure if it's going to hurt any less in the director's cut. I I would say that in the inter- international cut it does hurt way less because in there Toto just leaves, and that's that. You you don't see the aftermath of the, of the love story. You don't see Toto yeah. anymore. You you don't see Toto reminiscing his old flame and being kind of a desperate try to once again connect with Elena and showing you that Toto never got got over Elena. In in there it's just, you know, he leaves and that's that. He closes that page in his life and then moves on. 
and is free of Elena. And I do think that that's kind of the lesser take of the love story in the end. And I do think that's also kind of a lesser take on the theme of nostalgia within the film. Because I I, I personally connected with the, with the way how love story ends, what it say about, and what it has to say about nostalgia. I also kind of read it in personal level as a, as a film buff and, and as a film podcaster. Because even though on, on visual level, on, on the surface, film celebrates nostalgia very much. It's a very nostalgic film. But in text, Alfredo makes it blatantly obvious to Toto that Toto should avoid nostalgia, that nostalgia is bad. It's an anchor that stops you from moving forwards and stops you from being free. So in order to be free, Toto has to free himself from nostalgia. And I see some truth in that notion. I see some truth for film buffs there as well, because film, if anything, film is kind of a, a fragment of time that is forever frozen and preserved as, a, as, a, as, a, as an art form. As, as, a, as a piece of cinema like you you watch a movie and and it's a, the movie you see it captures a moment in time it captures people actors who are, are long gone it captures a way of filmmaking it captures ambitions feelings thoughts political ideologies that's why you can watch film done in, in Nazi Germany and see ideologies that you can no longer see in cinema because the world has moved past those, those, those ideas. But in film, they are forever preserved. And in a way, film paths, I feel, film critics and, and podcast hosts are people who are unable to ever truly free themselves from the past. <laughs> like, yeah, like, you're... you're Average average audience can can go to cinema and they can they can be free of everything. They can just watch the current cinema. We we make the we repeatedly make the notion, jokingly the notion that in 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 the free club we don't watch the Marvel movies and we joke about this. But that's true. We 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 don't watch Marvel films. We we w- don't watch that much modern movies at all. What we watch is old movie these frozen fragments of of history long ago we watched movies decades ago now we are talking about the umpteenth hour about cinema paradiso which was made in the 88 it's a decades old film pretty much nobody gives a shit anymore of it, it it's not topical it, it's not what the old mass audiences will go see in cinema the people who care about films like cinema paradiso are film buffs, critics, and and people like us. We are we are the ones who who see the trouble and and pay extronomical amounts of money to have Blu-ray copies of black and white films. For fuck's sake, the, and and we can't let go of the old world in a sense. We we are explorers and we are scholars who try to look look into the past. And that way, I would say that we also are, much like Toto in his love with Elena, we also are being trapped and being kept prison by the past. And that's kind yeah. of my, what I, I personally felt that the film in the end said through the love story of, of Toto and Elena 
and and through Alfredo's notions about nostalgia, because nostalgia is is can be often is a good thing. Nostalgia it's in itself isn't inherently bad, but it's it can be a force that keeps you prison, and it's a force that can also be and often is weaponized and used against you. Stuff is being sold to you through nostalgia and and revoking that that feeling of nostalgia. And to me, what what cinema paradiso in the end and why it talks about it's it's that connection to cinema that people like you and I have and talks about exactly how diverse and how complicated that that relationship can be. Wow, well, thank you for joining us. I think we're good. And yeah. those words right there. <laughs> but ne- re- next time, something much more fun. <laughs> <laughs> that, but that's really, really, really. I, I, I found that analysis. I, I didn't really think about it from this angle at, at all. That's it. Really makes sense that you. I'm not sure what the director's intention was, but could definitely go this way. By the way, it's not my plan. I don't think it's your conscious plan either to have kind of older films usually in this podcast. It just uh, once again happens. We, we, we just resonate towards them for some reason. Like, like I, I, I do know that you don't like superhero fan film, films. You're not a fan of those. That's much I've gathered. Uh-huh. But, but superhero films also ain't the old, only new films that are in theaters. Of course, monetary reasons do abide. <laughs> uh, a film ticket in, in Finland is, is expensive as all hell. So I myself, I can't check that many in-theater releases. But once again, the movies that are in theaters are also not only new movies are out there. You, you can say that, that a three or four year old film, which now you can easily get on DVD, that also is relatively new cinema. But for some reason, I've also noticed it. And I, I also don't think that this is a conscious effort from us. Something that we try to do so much as, as it's something that we just happened to do. But we do kind of... Mm. A, so somehow we are being pulled by, by the more older films. But uh, this whole thing that you mentioned about what, what this film could be most about this that avoiding that feeling of nostalgia in a way maybe that is in fact now that i think about it kind of the 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 biggest theme that kept kind of bothering me when i finished the theatrical or the director's cut and i kept uh, kind of having flashbacks into my old life Uh, there is this uh, certain eastern suburb in helsinki where i have lived for most of my life and I often feel that I have lived there in Vuosari for so long that I just don't get anything out of that place anymore. Because For several reasons, I think, because so many ghosts from the past, all the things that happened there with bad human relationships, romantic relationships, the people that I didn't like, <laughs> all that all that bad side, you know, it, it always comes back to haunt me every time I go there on some some level. You walk past those familiar streets that you have walked past like 500,000 times. And there's just so much history. I feel that I want to take some kind of distance to that. But at the same time, I can't quite get rid of this place either. I don't know if I fully want to, but I want to keep some kind of a distance. Maybe it also has to do with the fact that I have lived 
a little bit here and there in Finland and now I'm living in Poland and just going always back to Helsinki and the suburbs it just feels like you are anchored into something that you just quite can't get rid of even if you wanted to like again I'm here and nothing has changed and nostalgia yes but uh. yeah I, I I have had the similar experiences for the exact same reason reasons also having to moved way too much yeah and and having all all, all these these memories good and bad in in many different places um but so, something i also notice is that when 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 i revisited the places from my past they they never been quite the same in the end like on on a, on a surface level you you get the same surroundings you get the same same city that the same buildings but the more you kind of walk in those those cities the more, more you walk down the main road so to speak the more you kind of start to notice things that are just a little bit off like not exactly like you remember there, there is the shop that you mm-hmm. remember from from years ago and it's not there anymore it's it's another shop there's yeah. a building that has been demolished there, there is a paintwork that has been withered by rain and years and it's it's not as clear as you remember it it kind of feels like you are watching that city through a mirror or or yeah. or a thin wall of ice like you you see the overall picture there's nothing wrong with the picture but but the more you look the closer you look at it you you start to see these more stains here and there it's it's a bit more murkier it's it's a bit more dirty there's there's dust on on the mirror surface and it's it's on those moments that you realize that it's not exactly the same it's a really good copy of yeah. what you had years ago but it's not exactly the same people are older something something is kind of off and you can never actually completely explain what it is But you get this outsider feeling, like yeah, the, the, the city is here, and you know the city, but you are still somehow you are looking the city from the outside, and you can't really connect with it anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's infuriating. It's an infuriating feeling because it is. It it, uh, it drives me nuts. All right, because every time I come back to visit Finland, of course, I go to the capital Helsinki, and and when you keep away for extended periods of time for example i visit maybe two three times a year in helsinki per year and i see so massive changes every time i come there something has been built something has been removed somebody is different somebody died yeah it kind of builds this distance you want to keep that image that you have of of that city or that town or that locale that you knew and came to love even simple goddamn things you go to your summer house and somebody has changed the radio What? I demand the old radio. Get it back from yeah. the trash. Yeah, it, it it's not the same without uh, the exact same trappings. Yeah, but funnily enough, at the same time, I I find it really hard for me to... You know, live, going back to live in those same neighborhoods, that feels like living in the past, changes or not. Yeah, it, it kind of feels that do, during that moment, you kind of get the feeling that you somehow have taken a step backward. Yeah. Even though in in chronological lo- logic, like like seeing time and your decisions as a line, it's obvious that you are going forward. 
you have moved somewhere else and now you're moving back because of reason. At the same time, you always get this feeling that, that it's a step backwards somehow, like half a step. And it's, I think, very hard also for an, for an expat or anybody who has lived outside of their home country and then come back and you have certain experiences and you have kind of your heart of home all over the place. There's this kind of a culture shock or maybe it's the reaction from or the non-reaction from other people that they don't know what you've been through and they don't have really, you don't have anything really to discuss about what you have experienced because they can't understand it fully because they haven't been there doing those things. Even if you try to explain it, it's it's not, not really the same thing. And and as a, as a result, it just kind of feels like nothing has that much happened with the people that you know. It just feels like going straight back into the same corner where you started from, in a way. Yeah, it's weird. It is. Like, these days, I... Just, I even try to avoid returning back to the old cities where I have once lived and just you know, try to keep moving on to the, to the next city, going to a different place every time, never coming back. Hmm. Not not even to visit if I can help it, because I'm, I'm kind of sick of that feeling. <laughs> yeah. Well, unlike Toto... I still want to visit my parents more frequently than every 30 years. So I'm stuck with these ghosts <laughs> from the past. I'm not talking about people, by the way, but I'm better talking about the places. Okay. Well, we kind of went through the entire director's cut. I mean, there's not that much there. In the third act, the biggest part is the, the discussion in the car between Elena and Toto. And the way that Toto finds Elena is via... This motorbike uh, high school girl, I believe, who <clears throat> who reminds him of her, and then he manages to track down the actual Elena, and so it goes. First, Elena turns Toto down in a phone call, says that they shouldn't meet, but then they meet at the beach and go discuss in the car and passionate kisses, yada yada yada, and then Toto tries to once again connect with Elena to continue their relationship. But uh, Elena says that uh, it's gone. It's, it's we shouldn't go back there. It's it was fun to have sexy, sexy for one time in the car. But let's leave it at that. Okay, favorite performance. Uh, from my end, that goes to Filippo Noiret, who played Alfredo. I I do love the the totals of the film also. It has one of the best sound performances that I, I have seen, but so, somehow Alfredo still, to me, is the one who rises above everybody else. Yeah, prob- probably practically speaking, uh, the Alfredo is the best played character here, or best acted character, but given that the childlike energy, I will just go with the with the young Toto. Salvatero Castillo, so... Pretty remarkable performance and a favorite scene. Uh, would be the moment from Alfredo's funeral when Toto is looking at the crowd behind him and he sees the familiar face. Like we we talked mm. about the, the feeling how back you notice that things are different and it doesn't feel, feel the same and in my opinion in the film this is kind of the one scene that captures 
that feeling the best. Toto's expression on his face when he sees the old faces and they have all changed. They are now old and somebody's other eyes a bit weaker than it was in his childhood. And there is that kind of a, there, there is this subtle look of shock in, in Toto's face on that moment. Yeah, good one. For me, it's the exit exams in the classroom with uh, Toto and Alfredo. I just really enjoyed this playful chemistry that is seen between the actors. Uh, great scene. It, it is really, it, it's good scene. It's great acting from both of them. Yeah. Favorite quote. Um, this goes to the kid Toto and to the beginning of the film. This is no joke for weaklings, cuckolds and traitors. Meaning that Toto is a film podcaster. <laughs> you seem to find those film podcaster references all over the place. Uh, my favorite quote, or one of many, would be, quote, Yes, I saw a girl at the station. What's she like? She's very nice. My age, slim, with long brown hair. She has big blue eyes and a clear gaze. A beauty spot on her lip. Tiny one, you only see it close. And when she smiles, you feel, I don't know, love. Perhaps nothing that's remarkable or exciting in the words, but maybe it's once again the, the performance here. Yeah, that the deliveries can also make or break a good quote. Yeah, favorite kill. And before you have a chance to steal it, I call it out, Don Vincenzo. <laughs> well, well, well. If not going with the lame, the death of innocence once again, the, um, well, the, you know, death of nostalgia. Let's drink to that. <laughs> Random confusing question. Mm, well... I wish I had such of an exciting childhood as is depicted here. Can't really say that I have had. I, I, I don't know if that childhood really was that exciting. Like, look, looks yeah. pretty crappy. Looks, looks no, no secret dream guests. And look, <laughs> look, look, looks, looks mostly like going to school, going to home and going to work. <laughs> but basically are adult life. Yeah, that's, there's one discussion point once again that you could spend time on. Like this film and its relationship to work or thinking how to think about work you know this starts as a hobby and passion for toto and then it becomes a full-blown work could have been interesting to see more how that you know how his relationship might change to that 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 whole operationist part of his life or films or film podcasters i'm kind of guessing that he would have grown kind of a jaded old and tired much like alfredo in the end just like warned but what drew you out uh, nothing really. I, I I did raise my opinion and thus problems with the, the very nice nature how Toto's and Elena's romance starts properly, but that didn't take me out of the picture. It just was this, this one thing that I felt was a bit off. Oh, I know what to, kind of took me out here. Most definitely on the first viewing. Yeah, it, it's still there. Quite strongly, in fact. Because I don't... I just didn't buy on any level. Well, I guess I should kind of forgive it for this. But I just didn't see the old or the middle-aged Toto as Toto. I can kind of connect the teenager and the child Toto together. But the old Toto, I don't find him to be the same character. And it's a completely wholly different section of the film for me for good and bad okay that that's surprising because i had 
no problem with the other Toto either. Okay. I was I was completely fine. If if I would have to pick like kind my hair, the the least effective Toto, I guess to me it would have been the teenage person. Uh, yeah, Marco Leonardi kind of at the beginning of his movie career. So yeah, and it, it it's not even the actor's fault. I can't say that there's anything fault with the character either. Mm-hmm. But much much like you, you didn't connect with the adult Toto. I like once again in a country my head, you have to pick one situation. I I guess that there is a tiny bit of disconnect with the teenager, maybe because of the the fairy tale nature of the romance between the teenage Toto and Elena, or how how that how it starts. Maybe that's the reason. Maybe it's the reason that the military montage goes on too quickly. Like something really minor like that. Yeah, there's kind of three ones. The child wants to be a film projectionist. The second, uh, the teenager wants to f- feel love. And the third wants to, I guess, ultimately to get rid of nostalgia. Or, or find some kind of an inner peace. Because the film, in the end, it it ends with nostalgia. Once again, Toto gets the film can from Alfredo, which is the all the censored kissing scenes put yeah. together into one continuous film role. And he's happy and crying and emotional as he watches it. So in the end, Nostalza isn't completely bad and he doesn't completely leave it behind him. He, like, he finds yeah. some kind of a solace also from Nostalza as an adult. I took it in a way that he gets kind of a solace from seeing all those those kisses that he was never able to see, that he was stolen from seeing those those scenes. And uh, that kind of completes maybe his yearning of what happened 30 years before. Well, in the theatrical cut, he never gets to Elena, but uh, gets some kind of a comfort and closure as the movie theater also is collapsing. Yeah, to, to me, I, I read it that he kind of, uh, he, even after leaving the home village once again, returning back to Rome, and uh, after losing the movie theater as a physical place, he still, through the film can, he still has a connection to his past and to his childhood, and that's what he gains through in, in the final images of the film. That That's how I read the Toto's mm. reaction to the film can. Yeah, yeah. I think ultimately it just kind of seals the deal. That's it. He can move on with his life, I hope. What drew you in? Um, From my end, most definitely Morricone's soundtrack. <laughs> there isn't that much music there from him, but all of that is there. It's fantastic, yeah. It is, once again, it's absolutely fantastic. Yeah. It kind of, once again, goes to show you the unfortunate truth that that film, no matter how good it is, if it's not entirely black and white, silent, doesn't have even the background. Outside of those, the film is audio-visual art form, meaning that the soundtrack, and the music and the sounds of the film actually play a huge part on how good the film is. People like to point fingers at, at Steven Spielberg's movies and, and make the notion how Steven Spielberg wouldn't be anything without John Williams. 
that's absolutely correct, <laughs> but neither would be Cinema Paradiso either. Or at least it wouldn't be as good as it is with uh, with Morricone. Yeah, mm. for me, the biggest enjoyment was the first part of the film when everything was still happy and all that sunshine and that electric uh, relationship that they have going on, uh, Alfredo and Toto. And I like that happy place. But Caesars of Sacrilege, what would you change in the film and in which cut indeed? Uh, I kind of wouldn't change anything in in the director's cut in my case. Uh, but I, I, I would say, like you remarked, that the real question in this episode, the scissors, is which cut do you prefer of the three cuts that exist? Like, which one is, is the best? And do you approve mm. the different cuts that have been made? I myself defend the director's cut and okay. say that that's, that's it. And, and what Weinstein did shouldn't have been done. And I haven't seen the... Theatrical cut myself, so can't talk about that. Yeah, but... it's a Toto comes to after thirty years to his hometown, sees mom, and pretty much immediately it goes to funeral of Alfredo. And right after that, they tear apart the the cinema paradiso, and he goes then immediately to pretty much to see the reel that he got from Alfredo as heritage or something, and it ends there, just like the director's cut. So. Oh, okay. Ignoring everything, everything regarding the rekindling, the re-meeting, the meeting between Toto and Elena. And I have to say that I really, well, I watched theatrical cut as the first one, first of all, and then I saw the, the director's cut. Maybe that has something to do with it. But uh, I prefer theatrical cut, in fact, because it leaves kind of into ambiguity to your own imagination what happened between Toto and Elena. And I'm not sure if it was that valuable other than you know, just closing the whole nostalgia trip part of the storyline. And I also didn't quite connect with the old act- actress of Elena. Yeah, I felt that these were not the same people. And I get that it's kind of hard to <laughs> emulate this, except nowadays because you can, you know, digitally change the faces and oh my god. But <clears throat> yeah, I felt that it was uh, that too much of explaining. Yeah, three adjectives to describe the film. Um, mine are sweet, heartfelt, and sad. Yeah, warm, nostalgic, uh, sad. Did you look at your watch? No, I didn't. No, neither did I. And you really know you're watching Cinema Paradiso when... When you are quietly with a lady and the bell starts to ring inside your head. <laughs> you really know you're watching Cinema Paradiso when you have a pinch of your childhood and then... The unfortunate, sad reality that we have. Work, home, work, home. Would you recommend Cinema Paradiso, Henrik? I would, in case that isn't blatantly obvious already at this point. But most definitely, yeah. I would, I want side with the, the common criticism against the film. And I I do think that it's, it's a movie that you do well well to see yourself. Yeah, I would as well recommend it. It's one of the better films that I've seen in a long time, which I guess I keep saying a lot in this podcast. We have had a lot of great films here. And it, it invo- it's invoking certainly a multitude of different feelings. Uh, depending on the person, it can go to who knows where. But 
it starts off like a fantasy of your childhood and then it's just miserable and <laughs> sad and <laughs> realistic and might even make you cry. For me, that didn't resonate so hard for some reason. Maybe it's because of the aforementioned connections to the old areas where I have lived and all the ghosts of those pasts and I can very much do without them. That's pretty much it for this week. Yeah, what, you what say? is next week? Well, uh, this is interesting because I've been thinking that since we are closing in on our hundredth, there are some responsibilities that we have to, to check off our list before we head to the hundredth. So I sh certainly will grind my teeth already at the thought if somebody wants spoilers of my opinion, man. But would you be up for Mulan Rouge? Well, shit. Why not? It's not like I have anything better to do. <laughs> yeah, we haven't touched upon uh, touched on any musicals in this podcast, so... No, we haven't. That's, that's one uh, genre, once again, where we have been lacking. Yeah, well, let's just cross it off the list. <laughs> <laughs> this is how we choose movies. <laughs> But speaking of quality production. <laughs> the speaking of nostalgia. <laughs> this is once again one of those films that you have reviewed for the Forlorn website that we had. Yeah, yeah, yes, I did. And I gave it quite a positive review back in the day. I know. Or maybe I do the same thing again. Who knows? Yeah. You're free to suggest something else, but this is what came to my head. I know. I, I guess we can tackle a musical. Finally. Okay, but uh, ready to wrap up. And uh, next week, join us indeed for Mulan Rouge. Arrivederci and all that. See you next week. Until then. Also, Toto calls himself Stronzo, in this soft Italian voice, which means asshole.